hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a cloudy autumn afternoon here in the capital is Martin Stevens. Martin is the co-founder of Harrison Stevens, a landscape architecture and urban design firm based in Edinburgh. Um, Martin, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so much for joining us. Yes, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure, Martin. And um, normally at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there and approach the subject from that angle. Um, Because it's proven to be such a huge challenge for leaders within all walks of life, this pandemic, hasn't it? But for yourselves as an architecture and design practice, to what extent has it changed things for you? Well, thanks, Scott. Yeah, I think uh, we um, have seen all around us people being um, incredibly uh, affected on on a number of levels. But as as our practice took uh, a very sort of positive and and active portfolio of of strong projects into into the first national lockdown in in sort of uh, March, April, May, we actually were presented with perhaps concerns that were, um, were were set on a different level from from many people within society, and that we we, we genuinely were, had concerns about delivering the amount of work we had on the books at the time, with the reality of everyone going home and and working from home. So, as a business, um, we, we certainly not an embarrassment of riches, but we we had a, a very uh, a very much better ride of it than than many people um, in different industries, but the focus was really on on supporting our our team through the transition that they were having to make in delivering all of that work for us in in a very much different uh, set of circumstances. Um, you know, as designers, we like to roll our sleeves up and get the the big crayons out and, and sit around a table and, and and sort of work off each other's energy, and and all that was was going to be taken from that process and put into a, a digital format, which was, um, yeah, it was certainly a challenge to uh, to make all that work, but the team rose to the challenge. And I'm, I'm pleased to say for that first sort of three or four months, we, um, you know, we, we, we really weathered the storm, sorry, better than, better than most, I'd say. Mm. So when it came to that sort of remote working transition, you'd say that that came relatively seamlessly for yourself and your team. Yeah, it did. We've got a we've got a great team that work with us mm-hmm. in our um, in our wider support network. So IT was robust, and um, you know certainly everyone was able to to do that work remotely. But as you know, we tend to celebrate taking ourselves out of our comfort zone and challenging ourselves in, in different ways. Uh, you know, every day in the business, uh, this certainly did all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's huge credit to the team to uh, to have, have sort of. Got, got up to speed with that new reality very, very quickly. And can you see it simply being a short-term solution or can you perhaps see even when there is a vaccine for COVID-19, of course, fingers crossed that there will be, the fact that the office environment that you were used to may never come back in vogue? 
I think that's a real a real issue for for many of our um, businesses and um, and and the the urban fabric itself. I mean, we're, we're going to end up, I'm sure, with lots of big floor plates uh, not having um, you know, commercial leases renewed, um, and you know, that that pr- provides another um, challenge for um, the city centres and, and the urban environments that we work within. I think there's many people that are going to capitalise on this. Um, this this terrible uh, challenge that we've all been facing to actually um, you know throw that throw that deck of cards up in the air and, and reassess their hands. We've got certainly a, a very much changed perspective on home working. Um, we we always had uh, core hours within the business that allowed our team members to to work effectively around their own personal lives. But um, I think we had uh, perhaps not embraced home working per se until now because of uh, perhaps a, a little bit of a, a challenge on our own core values to, to innovate and to, um, and, and to keep that curiosity burning. So I think mm-hmm. it's been a great opportunity to, to actually hold ourselves to account on those values and say, well, homeworking has worked just you know uh, as well as we could have ever hoped for in this environment. I think there's definite strains on the individuals that are having to um, sort of fold to that uh, reality mm. as, a, as, a, as a different um, requirement. Um, but I think bringing it back as a flexible opportunity for people to, to utilize as we do move back into a, a reality of, of freedoms of choice that, um, that we're able to make, uh, absolutely, we're, we're definitely going to re- retain that as, a, as an option for people to, to benefit from. Mm. It certainly amplified um, the importance of mental health and well-being hasn't it the pandemic as well as the uh, the work-life balance and the benefits that working from home has for that there are however of course mental health arguments for both sides of working from home and also working in an office environment where there is that capacity for the human social interaction that we've missed during the months of lockdown and perhaps took for granted before the pandemic itself hit. Um, When you've been sort of working from a distance and leading everybody mobilised from their homes, um, have you found it quite easy to sort of keep on top of safeguarding mental health and well-being, do you think? I certainly think it's um, something that that me, uh, my, my fellow Co-founder uh, and the rest of our management team have had at the front of our minds in in many of the things we've been trying to do, um, and I guess it's it's often you, you want things to flow naturally and things to be um, unscripted as best that they can be. But when we when we ha- when we're trying to make new habits and trying to form those new uh, realities to to cope with, then some things do need to to be a little bit more structured and a little bit more um, introduced. And we've certainly done our best to keep the team together with with you know any number of different tasks that we have, uh, you know, not tasks but opportunities we have, I guess, within the, the working week to come together. And um, certainly, the, the the technology has uh, has helped with that. But undoubtedly, you know, for people living um, on their own or perhaps living in in cohabiting spaces where the opportunities for, for social space and, and you know, interaction is is more limited. And we've uh, we've done a number of different events throughout the, the period, and we'll continue to do so. Um, and we're you know now we're mm-hmm. we're able to get back out in in smaller groups. Um, you know we've met up and, and done uh, sort of a, a version of our annual study tour. We usually take the whole team away to, uh, to for a four day trip to uh, to assess and, and review 
and different uh, sort of environments around around Europe. Mm-hmm. But this was, you know, this was a year to to explore our own backyard, and in school, small groups, we we you know visited various projects in and around Edinburgh, um, and uh, some of us have got back up the Munros as well, which we we tend to do as a as a team uh, from time to time. And it's good, isn't it? And um, I think that sort of sense of real unity that's come about during the uh, the pandemic and the fact that people have really brought out the best in themselves during a time of adversity is a real, real positive that we can also take from this, as well as what we've learned about sustainability and about working from home. Um, sort of thinking about that in a little bit more detail, are there any other positives, Martin, yourself, that you feel you can take from this whole experience over the last few months? Yeah, I, I, we, we've 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 had so many opportunities to learn from from these um, you know, from these challenges that we faced. We we celebrate the ability to dream um, within the business. You know, we as as creative individuals, you know, dreaming is is at the is at the far you know the, the forefront of of coming up with with new ideas and new um, new proposals. And you know, the opportunity to say, okay, this is this is this is what we're faced with. Um, do we do we take sort of a ownership of that situation, or do we become a victim of it? And I think the the, the character of our team has been has been hugely um, beneficial in that. That, that there's you know, huge opportunities. We've you know as a as a senior sort of member of the team, I would often get a huge raft of, of 30, 40, 50 drawings printed out for me to review prior to a submission. Mm. Um, well, well, that's never going to happen again. Um, you know, I haven't done it for the last five months and that's all been, you know, uh, digital markups and, and, and the sort of QA process. I'm, I'm never going to have that volume of, of paper, um, you know, being, being entirely wastefully produced again. It's, you know, there's, there's opportunities left, right and center mm. to, to address some of the, some of the impacts within a business, and you know, just just as we we've seen some of the the environmental impacts uh, or, or benefits that people were noticing, you know, dolphins back in Venice and and, and sheep walking through city streets. Um, you know, we, we have to understand that sometimes we we need to under we need to just take those opportunities and remember what it was like when when we we were in. Um, you know the, the the complete alien environment of a full lockdown, and not forget the impact that has on people, but also not forget the the impact it had on things that we thought maybe could never be changed. You know, nobody mm-hmm. nobody flew anywhere for three months. You know, what's that like? We we see BA you know, dropping their entire fleet of seven four sevens that were you know some of the the most polluting aircraft in their fleet. Well, great, that's happened five ten years earlier than perhaps it would have done. The the ability to hold maybe not all meetings, but certainly um, a number of our design team meetings and presentation meetings um, remotely. How many carbon miles is that saving and people not driving and, and, and you know, sort of traveling to, to these events? So I think both ourselves and our clients and collaborators, um, you know, I, I would say that's the biggest challenge for us all is to learn the positives that have, have come from this lockdown period. Mm-hmm. Um, not focus on the negative, not focus on judging people that may not have made the right decision at the right time. Um, you know, if, if we could all do that, then then I think, you know, it would be a, it would be a reality that none of us could perhaps come to terms with. We all make mistakes, we're humans, but learning from those and turning them into opportunities, I think hopefully is, is what we can all take from it. 
That's exactly it. Leadership itself is all about learning. It's a continuous process of developing and improving because we never are a finished article. We never know everything that there is to know. And we've learned so much in a very, very short space of time during this pandemic. And actually, um, I didn't want to go through our time on the programme today, Martin, without issuing a congratulations because I believe it is the 10th anniversary of the Harrison Stevens business, isn't it? Do correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yes, absolutely. It was uh, it was June uh, June two thousand and ten. So mm. we had uh, we had a, a you know a number of things planned for our tenth year, and um, one of one of those was a, a series of ten challenges that our clients and collaborators set us at our ninth uh, sort of anniversary. We had a, a client reception to to recognise the, the work our clients and collaborators do with us, and uh, at that ninth uh, anniversary, we uh, we set a challenge to our, our collaborators to set us 10 challenges in the in our 10th year. And, uh, you know, we had some fantastic input from a number of people and, you know, carrying on with those challenges in a, in a remote uh, or, or, or digital sense was one of the main things that we were doing in the, in the early, early months of the lockdown. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been a, a great journey. I think we, as you say, we all continue to learn um, and the ability to acknowledge, you know, the, the entrepreneurs that that run the SMEs across the UK don't don't necessarily get um, born into leadership. They they all have a journey that takes them to that position. Mm-hmm. And continuing to learn, having a growth mindset, um, uh, is, is is absolutely fundamental to that because we need to keep developing. You're exactly right. And I can imagine that you've learned an awful lot in the 10 years that the uh, the firm has been going, um, especially over the uh, the last few months of uh, that period of time as well. Um, but if, and this may sound like a little bit of a mean question, but if you could actually go back to 2010 when you did first start the practice, is there anything that you would do differently armed with that experience that you have now? Uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and I think possibly the, the biggest uh, contributor to both uh, Mike Harrison and myself um, and our personal development as leaders has been the um, the adoption, or if, if that's the right the right phrase, or certainly the the ongoing relationship with uh, our business coach. Um, I think we acknowledge that you don't need a coach because you're not very good. You don't need a coach because you're failing. You know, all of the top athletes in the world have coaches. They have coaches because they strive to be better. And I think the last four years of working with uh, our coach, uh, Daniela Gandini, has been inspirational to us. And I think it's opened our eyes to just the, the value of, of having someone work with you and let you know what you don't know. Because then you go from... Um, you know the, the the position of being um, sort of unconsciously incompetent to realizing having a, a, an understanding you're incompetent to then moving forward to, to dealing with those and you know at the end of the day you end up in a position where what you didn't know four years ago you're now unconsciously competent on so you go through that full cycle of not knowing you don't know something knowing you don't know it, working through the ability to, to tackle those, those um, deficiencies in your knowledge. And then, you know, a, a number of years later through, um, you know, quarterly planning, through annual, annual goal setting, you end up realizing you're now doing something unconsciously 
only a few years ago you didn't even realize you had no knowledge of and that's i think the real the real impact for us has been to to stretch us and stretch our own um, development and then leading that on into our senior team who will now work with our business coach as well and um, delivering that down through trickling into our our, our full team of, of 14 people um, with personal improvement plans that our studio manager works with them on on a quarterly basis, setting small targets that will build up to annual goals and then trying to challenge people to, to improve on a daily basis. Because I think there was one point in uh, in, in, the, in the, the recent documentary um, that, uh, that the BBC put out, The Edge, which I'm sure you will have seen, as many people will have had, um, at the end when uh, Andy Flower, the, the England cricket coach, was reflecting on some of the, the costs of, of his successful reign in that position. And I think it was had real resonance that, that the one thing he would change was, was to work with the person as much as the player. And I think that's an important acknowledgement that, that really resonated with me, that if you can work with the individual to be to help them be as good as they can possibly be, then the the work they deliver for you as being part of your team will take care of itself. Mm. I think that was um, that was something that I found really powerful. And whilst it was something perhaps Mike and I had already subscribed to, hearing it back from from that kind of person in that kind of a context, um, I think was um, something that really landed with me from from that documentary. Mm. And just thinking about some of those improvements that could come about in future that you were talking about there, some of those future developments just before we do wrap things up on the show today. Um, I know it's difficult to look too far ahead in time because of just how uncertain the current landscape is. But if we sort of put our sort of crystal ball heads on for a moment and look maybe 12 months from now, ideally, where would you like Harrison Stevens as a firm to be by then, Martin? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by that point? Well, I think we've we've struggled as a as a profession, perhaps to to um, to have to be able to deliver the value we know we can in in the external environment. We deal with the design of the space between buildings. We design the the parks and the, and the recreational spaces and the green blue networks that we have all perhaps come to um, appreciate a little bit more consciously during lockdown when you've only got one hour. That hour becomes very precious in in our um, in our spaces and and places around uh, around the cities and towns and countryside we live in. So I think what what I have a sincere desire for is that we are able to keep that focus in people's minds, allow them to remember the the benefit that our external spaces provide, both um, you know in biodiversity and and, and sort of a, a bigger picture responsibility to the planet we live on but also there's the real benefit it has to us as, as individual human beings and the connections we make both with each other and and our planet and you know, make sure we we don't lose sight of that um that value that we placed on these these spaces during the lockdown um, period and you know if if we get back to that again in uh, in the next few months and, and sincerely hope we don't but to to have the opportunity to to take that value in our external environment forward into the into the years and decades to come, there's many big big issues that we can we can help be part of solving if we just appreciate what we have around us in the external environment. 
certainly going to be a very interesting few months ahead, isn't it? And just given, Martin, how enlightening it's been having you join us on the uh, the programme today to share some insights as to what's been going on behind the scenes, I think it would be fantastic to actually catch up and welcome you back onto the show with us just to see how things are starting to take shape over the course of the year, the next year, because I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the airwaves alongside me. I think that'd be a wonderful opportunity, Scott. I'd, I'd very much welcome that, that chance to come back and, and share with you some of those hopes and uh, and and dreams that uh, will hopefully uh, start to crystallise into reality for a number of our our, uh, our, mm. our, our members of, of team and society as a whole. Yes, let's certainly hope so. Um, for now, Martin, um, please do take care, certainly, and stay safe with all that is still going on until we do get an opportunity to speak again, because there are still a great many variables in how this could ultimately pan out. But let's just keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in the rut for too much longer. Yeah, let's stay positive and, and look look to the horizon um, and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully look out for each other along the way. Exactly right, Martin. Thank you ever so much once again for your time. Excellent. Thank you, Scott. I'd also like to extend that message of goodwill to all of the listeners tuning into today's programme as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves, stay well and do be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Martin Stevens, co-founder of Harrison Stevens, onto today's show. Um, Next up on the programme today, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket skipper Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains, himself included, to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Since retiring from playing, he spent a period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and continued his charitable work championing mental health causes. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan welcomed the opportunity to catch up with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals, and on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname, Ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, 
Warnie got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match—I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, "Wow, hold on! Not potentially, I've got a whole England career ahead of me, and everything that entails." So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning, from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, 
looked like he'd aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You right. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? 
Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, that you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, 
and we had to move it. In fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is 
in some ways more pressing is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it dep- it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w- what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, 
a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.